Okay, so we're back with another episode. Uh, interesting one here. I have a returning guest, as I sometimes do, um, Dr. Ale Babino, and her co-author, colleague, Komdare, as she refers to it, uh, Dr. Amat- Mary Amanda Stewart, Dr. Mandy Stewart, uh, and they've written a book um, in addition to the academe that seems like when it comes out, I haven't read it yet because it hasn't come out yet, but uh seems like it's going to be really something that we in this field of language education need to get our hands on. Um, it's called Radicalizing Literacies and Languaging. I will let them tell you about it, but basically it really challenges a lot of the assumptions in the field. So uh yeah, that's what today's episode is about. Um, and I will mention once again, if you are able and willing to support the show on Patreon, the link is in the description uh it's also uh, there's also a link to the book which again is not out yet so it would just be a pre-order at this point but one presumes that once it comes out in december that link will turn into an actual link for the book so uh yeah listen to the episode uh get their book if you're able to do so um after you listen and you find it interesting which i'm sure that you will and support the show if you are able to do so as well all right. Okay, folks, welcome back to Unstandardized English. Uh, my name is JPB Gerald, but you knew that. Uh, I'm here with two guests. I'm here with Mary Amanda Stewart, Mandy Stewart, and I am here with a returning guest, Ali Babino, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the book that they wrote, they co-wrote, uh, that is coming out in December. By the time you listen to this, it'll be in November, so it's coming out next month. Uh, so that book is called Radicalizing Literacies and Languaging, and they're going to give us a rundown of what they've written and a lot of the things that they say are aligning really well with some of the stuff that I'm babbling about every couple of weeks on here. So thank you for joining me. Um, I guess I'll, I'll go back to Ali first because she was here before. Sure. So if you want to tell people a little bit about what you, uh, you know, what you've done and what you've researched, what you've written, and then I'll go to Mandy after that. Sure. Um, I almost laugh because we have such an academic title. I'm pretty sure it's like 15, 17 words. So listening to your podcast, um, not bemoaning, but providing very legitimate critique of academia, I really do appreciate. Because as we mentioned before on the podcast, we do consider ourselves critical pragmatists. So just by way um, of reminder, what that means to us is Bar none, we take a critical approach to our work just because of who our students are and who we've um, gotten to know through our time as educators. Um, I've been a bilingual educator for 15 years and Mandy, um, an ESL and bilingual for almost 20. Yeah, I'm older. 
So um, we really walked this out in life before we wrote it. And so very much so, I feel like we couldn't have written it um, without walking this out with our students and our own journeys through um, critical analysis and critical theories more specifically. Um, but because we're teachers, we do really take a pragmatic approach. We commonly um, enter many contexts um, and with that, we see a need to um, strategically apply um, what we've learned through theory and practice through graduate school and our own studies um, according to the needs of each audience. So that's where that pragmatism piece comes in. Um, always taking a critical perspective, but according to strategic need, needs of the moment in a particular context. So um, this is really, in a way, a climax of our work both separately and together in our work um, um just to bring up up to the journey and then i'll let mandy mm -hmm jump in. Um, my work primarily focuses on elementary bilingual students and more specifically Latinx bilingual students in dual language programs where the goals are to create bilingual, biliterate, and bicultural students with um, high levels of academic achievement. And so I'd always read about um, these ideals of this program. And so I wondered, how often does this really happen for our students? Um, so much of my research was born from living the everyday experiences um, of bilingual Latinx students that were by far first generation Mexican Americans. So um, through that, um, that's my expertise, but then Mandy has more of a secondary focus. So Mandy, do you want to share a little bit about your background and how that brought us to the book? Yeah, so um, my work is at the intersection of literacy and language. So bringing together, you know, reading, writing um, with TESOL, bilingual education, focusing on adolescents and adults. So that's my work that I paired with Allie's. So together, we really get to see the whole educational landscape um, because most of my time was spent as a fourth grade teacher and I noticed that students who grew up speaking Spanish at home, maybe even solely at home, started to reject Spanish even after participating in a dual language program, which um, caused me to ponder what is going on sociopolitically that is creating um, this microcosm where this is happening in a patterned way year after year. Um, so like Mandy, I was interested in language and literacy and I kept feeling like they both approached facets of truth, but in themselves had very siloed research histories. Um, and of course there are, there, there is some overlap, but there's like the traditional literacy research and the traditional bilingual research that taps into linguistics um, and even more specifically um, sociolinguistics and applied linguistics. Um, but we just kind of felt lacking and we felt like our students so desperately 
needed to be viewed from a more comprehensive view that was far more multi-dimensional than any one field could provide. So through our graduate studies and our time as faculty, um, we've been honing our understanding of the extant research to historicize the field, to see how have ideas of literacy and language competency been developed over time? And then how can we radicalize, not just trace the roots, but then also apply them in what can be considered extreme ways. Um, and so as we did that, we found something that Mandy terms the mono-mainstream assumption. Well, I, wait, before you get into that, because that's, uh, y'all didn't say where you actually were. Um, oh! <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you, did, you did explain a lot, but you didn't say much about yourselves. So that's cool. But if you want to, if you want to tell people who you are a little bit more too, that would help. <laughs> okay, we could do that too. So again, oh, I'm pronouncing my names. So um, Ali or Ale Babineau. Um, I am assistant professor and the co-coordinator of our doctoral program at Texas A&M University Commerce. That's a change just as of this past semester. Um, and I have the pleasure of working with bilingual and ESL pre-service teachers, as well as in-service teachers um, at the, what's it called? Undergrad, master's, and doctoral level. I keep saying Babino, I don't know, yeah. I know, well, because of Spanish phonetics, you would pronounce it that way. So I legit called my husband when we were dating um, by the wrong last name. And I'm like, why is everyone saying his name wrong? Like, <laughs> they're the problem. <laughs> when I'm like, oh no, I am saying it incorrectly, in fact, so. Right, because um, I, keep, I keep forgetting that, that, that that's his, that was originally his name. It's like, uh -huh, I, I know right. this, you've told me this, but yeah. I, I forget. It's anyway. okay, I did uh, it for a while. Thank you for explaining that to the folks, and Mandy? Yeah, I'm Mandy Stewart. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Literacy and Learning at Texas Woman's University. And I work uh, primarily with graduate students who are studying literacy and language. And I work with a lot of in-service teachers who are taking a translanguaging or multilingual view of their English medium classrooms, whether it's their ELA classroom, their ESL, history, math, um, any of those classrooms for them to take that multilingual view of their multilingual students. See, this is like a, a movie where we started in the middle and then we rewound yes. to the beginning. I find that interesting, so I'm not going to change it. All right, so you were talking about the uh, Oh shoot, you were saying the- It's okay, what brought us to this work. So yes, our teaching and research experiences, we saw literacy and bilingual or language education, really having distinct research histories. And we, of course, um, conducting our research and our teaching at the intersection of those fields, saw so much potential to be um, harnessed that could really benefit a more robust and humanizing view of our students that are largely racialized. Um, so through our review of the research, um, through radicalizing the research, through historicizing it, um, Mandy came up with the term, the mono-mainstream assumption. That's what so, I was yeah. going to ask, yeah. I'll explain that, that, that but y'all should know that I am the small town country girl who... <laughs> 
ask Allie to explain all the big words she uses. And I think, okay, how can I take this really big word and these theories that are, you know, very complex and apply them to real life people in real life classrooms. So that's a little bit of how our relationship works. But with the idea of the mono mainstream assumption, it's what I've seen through my research, mainly working with adolescents who are new to the country and sometimes adults as well, that we see them, even though we don't say it, we totally see them through a monolingual view. So English is the language that matters and they don't have it yet. Monoliterate, so viewing literacy in that mono way, we view them as monocultural, that they need to obtain um, this type of cultural understanding. We view them as mononational, just pertaining and having loyalties to one nation state. And then a lot of through our testing practices, we also place that monomodal view of them, really just privileging the written word. So in my work with these amazing young people, I'm like, whoa, no, th that's not at all who they are. They are multilingual, multiliterate, transnationals who make meaning in multimodal ways. And then Ali and I took that one step further and really privileging, um, privileging the idea of trans and how it symbolizes that movement across um, different entities. And we want to just um, really just bring out how these people are translinguals involved in transliteracy. They are transcultural, transnationals, and they make meaning in transmodal ways, which is way more than the mono. I remember the first time I heard of translanguaging in my class a year and a half ago, and my professor was explaining it, and I, I, I didn't quite understand. Mm -hmm. um, uh, not that I had an issue with it, I just, just did, I'd never heard of it before, and, you know, it was a shame. Now, you know, it's fairly new as a con concept, right. like, the, 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 what is going on is not new, but, right. you know, the, the name and so forth. Um, but I know that when I first heard it, it, it was challenging so many assumptions that I had, mm -hmm. right? I was like, no, 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 you can't. That's not, no, 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 you can't. No, no, there's this language and there's that language. Uh, <laughs> and that's, it's just, this is, it's either one language or it's another. And then understanding that, you know, floating between or, or, or you know, crossing, you know, what we consider, you know, named languages is valuable in itself was something that was hard for me, even as someone who's racialized and even as right. someone who, you know, has tried to stick up for his students, or at least my former students um, in my career and went to a presumably pro or nominally progressive mm -hmm. master's program. And forget about the name of translanguaging because, you know, names come out when they come out but I hadn't even thought of these things as possible. So like even mm -hmm. the, my point in talking about this is until I got into this, this particular class and had this particular professor who had worked on translanguaging, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't something that was put forth as important uh, in my studies, just, uh, you know, breaking free from the, the um, assumptions that right. are made for language learners and, and literacy in general, but specifically in, in this case for language learners mm -hmm. um, and, and language users really. Um, yeah, for all people. Yeah, that's what we want to hopefully very respectfully and humbly uh, bring to light is that our literacy research and our language research often has a mono mainstream assumption, even though we don't say it, that if we don't purposefully take a multi or trans the stance we're just perpetuating the mono mainstream mm -hmm. assumption yeah i mean that's a lot of this it's, it's similar 
you know, ideas to what I tend to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not always focused on language because I'm, you know, uh, not very focused, but <laughs> I, uh, a, lot, a lot of these ideas are really important because even when we are, like, for example, the whole concept of like the word gap being a problem and all that, right. well, yes. but then criticizing the word gap, we still tend to do it in this mono mainstream way, right. we, or, as you're saying, you know, we say, no, 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 there isn't a word gap. Sure. But that's taking it on their terms is mm -hmm. how it's defined, right? Like, then we're saying that, we're saying a couple of things. First of all, we're saying if there were a word gap, then that would be a problem. And second of all, you know, you, you get what I'm saying here, mm -hmm. you know? So it's, it's to me, it's like just trying to get people to improve on a, on a biased system um, mm -hmm. when the problem is the biased system. Exactly. Yeah, that is baked into everything we think. So it's really just untraining our minds to think the way that, the only way we've, we've known to think our whole lives. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's hard to do for people. And most of the time, people prefer to not do it. Um, so I am going to now go back to the 12 pages you sent me describing your book. Um, <laughs> Allie doesn't do less than 12. <laughs> well, to be fair, that's part of the book proposal process. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, I'm probably gonna have to go through this soon myself. So, um, so I'm not going to read all this out in the podcast, but uh, can you all walk me through a little bit of how the book is constructed? And you might, you know, if you want to give me the, no, I'm going to read it because especially since I like to make fun of these things, the full academic what? title, <laughs> I'll be, I'm just going to read it. It's, it's cause it's, I know, you know, but you know, this is, these are academic books. You just got, these are just how these things are, but you know, radicalizing literacies and languaging a framework toward, towards dismantling the mono mainstream assumption. That's not that bad for an academic book. We got a colon in there. So yeah. really it's just that first part. The colon <laughs> is like smaller letters that don't hold that against us. Yeah. But, but like, After you have the colon to, you have, counts. But like, I, I have such a, like, as, as critical as I am, even when I think of possible book titles, I can't even think of one that doesn't have a colon in it now, right? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just like, right. I think of something and it's like punchy short phrase, long explanation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but that's not that long though. It's not like that. That's short enough that it could be, a, um, you know, it could be like a conference presentation because conference presentations usually have shorter titles. And I feel like you could even get that one into a conference presentation in terms of like as a title. But anyway, so if you want to tell me a little bit about how the book is constructed um, and, you know, how it unfolds throughout the chapters, you don't have to tell me every single thing. But, you know, that would be useful for the people who might be interested in reading it. Definitely. Heard, so we um, yeah. really set the stage in our um, jam-packed introduction. We talk about um, the potential for literacy research and the potential for um, language research and how if, if we combine them together, we can work towards um, our mission of complex truths. We understand that truth is a central contestation in research, so we grapple with with it right at the beginning. What is truth? How can we have complex views of truth um, so that we can engage in these conversations more productively that um, lead to actionable work? And we can even talk about what we mean by complex truth. Um, so we're saying our whole goal or our threefold goal of the book is to work towards complex truth 
moves. Um, armed love, which is a Freirean term, um, that means not just like the emotive caring for students, but caring that leads to action on their behalf. And then transformative justice. And so it must lead to there's many um, definitions of justice in educational research, but one is the redistribution of resources and the other is making right of relationships. So that can be at every level. So we talk about how it's multi-scalar. Um, so we grapple with what truth is and then talk about the need for the um, dismantling the mono mainstream assumption through um, our own lived experiences, both as people and as professionals, and um, then really dig into what it looks like um, to take a critical perspective um, on these issues as we wrestle with English hegemony, just how English dominates everywhere. And we found this throughout the international research with translanguaging um, across the educational landscape that from early childhood in almost every country, not just the U.S., was suffering from English hegemony. It just dominates. But of course, white supremacy, and those are very much um, interlinked. Um, like your podcast talked about earlier, like um, white epistemologies, like what's even considered legitimate knowledge. And um, we really have to reprogram ourselves, like Dr. Lee Patel talks about, these white settler um, colonial patterns are patterns that we've been indoctrinated into. So we very um, explicitly and in community need to undo these. So Mandy and I had so many conversations um, of saying, well, I really thought about this and reflecting like this is problematic how we're talking about this participant or um, we're positioning ourselves as like the knowers or doers in this instance. How can we redistribute power throughout our interview time? Um, and then the last one is a neoliberal um, logic or sensibility about free market patterns um, in education at both the macro and the micro level. You talked about um, the grit you know, and saying, you just need more grit. Oh, does that bother me? Because I live that out. When we don't take a systems view of our students, we pathologize our students and we pathologize our teachers. We say, why can't you fix this? And it's like, they are not the problem. The system is the problem. So through the introduction, we try to set the stage for our threefold goals and then the three nefarious forces that are intertwined and um, make this such a challenge for transformative work. So, I mean, Mandy, were you gonna add to that? I just... That was good. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, there's a lot there. For folks listening, uh, she says earlier, and this is October 13th, so the episode she's referring to is the one Ooh, that I yeah. talked about for about epistemology and scholarship. So if folks want to go back and listen to that one, that's episode four this season, it definitely ties directly into this. Mm -hmm. However, you are hearing this a month later. So, yes. um, <laughs> but yeah, and, and I think that that's really important. A lot of those points that you're making, well, you know, I guess that you make in the book, but you're making and describing things because um, people... People have been talking about problems in language education for a while, but they always want to, they're very compartmentalized the way right. that people talk about these problems. And I understand sometimes you really do have to drill down into a very specific thing to unpack it and figure it out. But right. if we try to act as though, oh, we're going to fix this problem and that the system remains the same, maybe you fix that problem, but then people are still going to be harmed, exactly. right? You know, you talk about, we talked about grid or it could be any other buzzword. Um, and 
one of the things that I often think about grit, that the problem, it could be grit, it could be something else. Uh, grit itself isn't the problem, right? It's, it's, it's the way that it, these things are used as silver bullets. Right. You know? But if they didn't fix the system, then you just, you just going to be this, it's going to be something else three years later, it's going to be something else three years later. And right. then people think, oh, I fixed it. It's like, but you didn't redistribute the, the resources and the power. Mm-hmm. So, and you didn't take away the focus on the profit motive. Right. So, like, what have you done? You, you know, like, at best, you can have made it slightly easier for that student to succeed within the harmful paradigm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's the best we can do, but, like, we also just need to understand that that's what we're doing. Right. Um, you know, if it's one thing for me to say, you know, I disagree with these tests and I'm not going to do it and I'm not going to do it. And the student's like, yeah, but I have to take the test, man. Like, right. that's not, that's not really going to, I'm not helping him. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just, I just think it's really important to bring all these things together. Um, you know, the, the, um, the points you make about uh, Paulo Freire and, and a lot of his work, you know, and thinking about the praxis that he recommends. Um, and you mentioned armed love and I, I have a chapter coming out about radical love next year. Oh, great. Um, and, you know, but it's actually tied to the reason I brought it up because it's tied to the grit stuff. And I talk about how there's teachers, not entirely always, but many white teachers, I should say, um, find it very easy to use words uh, to describe themselves and their work without actually having taken the steps to do anything. Mm-hmm. So you hear a lot of teachers say that they decolonize their curriculum. Right. What did you do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, uh-huh. what did you, yeah. Okay. Well, you're reading different people. I mean, it's good. I'm mm-hmm. glad that you did that. But, and then, or they do two things and they're like, I'm an anti-racist. And I'm like, okay, if you actually read any of those books, you'd know, you can't just be one. Right. <laughs> you're right. always trying to get there. Right. Um, and so when I, I call this whole thing like check boxes and merit badges, like they want to check things off the list and they want to self-apply a merit badge. And I use merit badge because I was a Boy Scout. But, um, and I, I, I think it's what you're doing and what you're trying to do in the book um, is really important because uh, helping people understand that you can't just check one part of the box off and, and be done with it like you really have to think about all these things you can't do half of them and expect it'll change mm-hmm. yeah it's better to do half of them than to do zero of them but they all need to be brought together and I know in the book you have some I guess they're case studies um, testimonials testimony right right if you yeah, want to describe some of them to talk about the next two chapters in order to really build our argument after you know a few years of working on this, we realized we really needed some examples to flesh it out, to help people understand more of what we were saying. So we have four uh, testimonialistas, or women who gave their testimony, who are all women of color. They are all either first-generation immigrants or children of immigrants, three Latino women and one Persian. So we investigated their literacies and their languaging. So taking that literacy research and that languaging research stance, but we applied critical theory, primarily uh, racio-linguistic stance, as well as Pierre Bourdieu's, um, some of his words and theory that he has, we applied that to them as well to really flesh out the point we were trying to make. Um, yeah, because like those stories seem like they're, they're kind of like the, 
they're almost like the climax of mm-hmm. at least in the description. Like, I haven't read the book, but it, you know, in the way that it's described in, in the, I guess the proposal or the description, um, like they, it sort of builds to their stories, you mm-hmm. know? And I think uh, sometimes we, uh, you know, scholar types are up in the clouds discussing people right. and then you know we never hear from the people <laughs> mm-hmm. especially if we're from majoritized groups um, right. ourselves and being scholarly types we are in a a type of majoritized group one way or the other sure. um we can also be from other groups but you know what i'm saying yes. um i noticed that at one point in the introduction or in your description of the introduction you talk a little bit about your you mentioned that the, your positionalities are included there so okay. i wanted if you wanted to uh share because they can't see you um right. <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean, people who've been listening to my podcast for a while know your story, Ali, but right. they, they may not necessarily remember, or maybe new right. people are listening, and they don't know you, Mandy. So if you all want to share. Um, Definitely. Um, long story short, um, I would say at this point in my life, um, I would identify myself as a white Mexican-American. Um how I feel in my heart is Mexican-American, but I feel like it would be intellectually dishonest to not acknowledge um, the prime role that whiteness in my um, complicity and also proximity to whiteness um, has affected how I view and move in the world. So at this point in my life, I feel like that most fully um, encapsulates who I am. And um, I share how most of my experiences are um, informed by what's called a mestiza consciousness or being in between two worlds um, and more particularly marginalized whiteness or those that are white passing or white as part of um, communities of color benefit from white identity, but also marginalization at the same time, or those epistemologies from communities of color. And so that's why, or in part, while I feel like I can never take the Mexican out of the Mexican American, because it's so radically catalyzes how I see everything. Um, like walk into a room, I can see the Mexican or Mexican American perspective in the majority perspective. Um, looking at research, I can see um, those nuances because I've had to do that my whole life, frankly, in those liminal spaces. And so I more particularly talk about growing up, what that was like, um, and then more specifically as a professional, being a bilingual teacher at a um, basically segregated school, like 98% Hispanic, 98% free and reduced lunch. And year after year, out of my nine years on the campus, it felt like we were starting from ground zero and we were failing, we're failing, we're failing, despite all the blood, sweat, and tears. And that's when I realized the system's the problem and pedagogy in and of itself will not solve this problem. Um, It's an intricate set of systems and I wanted to understand those systems, which is what brought me to my doctoral journey in um, studying both literacy and languaging. Well, thanks for sharing. I am um, that one of the points you made in there that was really, I think, valuable because this comes up for me a lot is that pedagogy by itself is not how to solve this. Mm-hmm. Yes, we need to improve our pedagogy, obviously. Um, and I'm sure that you all mentioned how to do so in some ways, because you're all talking about, you know, the pragmatics of it. But mm-hmm. like people have repeated since my article on decentering whiteness came out, people keep 
saying, this is great. So what do I do in the classroom? And I'm like, mm-hmm. read, read an article. Um, <laughs> like, it's like, you can't just go to the classroom and do it. Right. <laughs> like, like, I do understand your point right. when you say that. And if it's people that I have a, a closer relationship with, I, like, then they're, they're really just asking me, like, what do you think? Well, that's mm-hmm. fine. But then, like, I have three or four times now written an offshoot of that article for, like, small newsletters that I, like, mm-hmm. I give a presentation. And they're like, write a, you know, a thing about it. And I'm like, All right, fine. And the thing is, sometimes it's helpful because some people read those newsletters and they haven't read the article. And I'm like, okay. But in all of the newsletter things, I say, please go read the article. There's things you, like go, you have to go do some studying. <laughs> like you can't mm-hmm. just like, hmm, this is interesting. Let me go teach differently. It's like, no, no. And I think it's really important for you to say, and I'm not trying to make the story about me in this sense, but I think it's really important for you to say like, um, you can't just like pedagogy is like the last step. It's like the last thing that happens, right? All this stuff changes. And then because of the changes, now pedagogy is different. And because like after that, like you teach the student and the student goes off and does something else. So it's like all this stuff has to happen in conjunction with and before pedagogy. And everybody wants to skip to the last step. And I understand teachers are busy, but like the only reason, and, the, and I've said this, and I think we said this to each other in the spring, mm-hmm. um, the only reason that it's hard, I think, to to move away from these things because we've been doing things the other way the whole time right like it's not actually that hard to once you do the work like the work is hard but once you do the work it feels natural to really Mm -hmm. genuinely support your students like you just wonder how i didn't do this forever Mm -hmm. you know um when you talk about walking into a room and seeing two perspectives you know i obviously have never been anything but black Right. But I was in so many white spaces and had not considered my blackness until I was a certain, I mean, I knew it, but like I didn't right. think about it um, uh, until it was pointed out to me repeatedly in high school when right. I when you know, um, but now when I'm reading something from like a critical perspective, which is just my general perspective now, if I want to get how people are seeing it from like a majoritized perspective, I just sort of like turn my analysis off for a second Mm. you know um I just read it I think about like reading it the way that sometimes my school sometimes Mm -hmm. is telling us to read things in a just sort of like generic way and then I'm like oh this is how most people are consuming this stuff they're just not they're just looking at the findings see what the things say and then they're gonna move on to the next thing Mm -hmm. um and that's a lot of the problem with the way these things are so thanks for you know, there were really some interesting points in there. Uh, Mandy, if you want to tell, tell the folks about yourself a little bit and yeah. your positionality in this world. Yeah, um, I am white and I am from a small rural community in East Texas. So I grew up where really everything revolved around me, my language, my culture, my way of viewing the world. Um, but fortunately, I was able to come out of that a little bit in steps. Um, I was able to acquire a second language and um, in college and study abroad. And I started working with uh, children and then adolescents who were new to the country when I was 20 years old. And that really just changed um, my view of the world and opened up so many um, 
possibilities for me that I hadn't seen. So it's really, you know, walking with my students who are all racialized students of color whose lived experiences are so different than mine, especially since they have multiple languages in, in their lives and they've lived in different places. So they have just influenced me um, for the past 20 years. And also my uh, research and personal relationship with Ali has highly influenced me to really try to understand um, different perspectives. So my entry point into that was first with language. Um, it grew to include culture and then more to really apply that critical race theory to everything I do as a researcher and in the classroom and then also to who I am, you know, personally as a human being, as a citizen, as a mom. So what's interesting about that is, you know, I know Ale's story, um, part of which she just shared, but also because we've talked before about this. Um, and she, but she, you know, made the point that like, because she grew up like uh, in a certain cultural scenario or several cultural scenario, like uh, it was not going to ever be a stretch for her to understand different perspectives because she had different perspectives in front of her mm -hmm. right um, now that's not a guarantee that people will come out right. progressive but it, it's 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 a higher chance let's just put it that way right, right? if because you I mean you remember saying like that you know your mother and grandmother were treated a certain way or things like mm -hmm. that um, I'm not trying to minimize that I'm just trying to go talk to Mandy about this because you could very easily and there are lots of language teachers like this yeah. have started teaching people who are new to the country when you were 20 and not become more empathetic about it. So I, I, I'm always curious about like if people are in that scenario and they, you know, they very easily don't learn a thing. They just do exactly what you're talking about, not about yourself, but they do the mono mainstream thing and think of these people as basically, you know, uh, less valuable. And yeah, it seem, we're talking and you're like, this is just, uh, you know, we are thinking about this and we know that this is just inhumane, but this is what people do and they don't really, you know, consider oh, yeah, it's normalized and it's invisible, which right. I think is the scariest part that it can just be this invisible thing that we don't talk about and we don't want to really grapple with. So that's part of what Ali and I want to do um, in the research field is help researchers, people who have influence on education in our world to help them see what we think is invisible and then address it. Yeah, yeah. I remember in a class I had last summer, we were, it was a literacy class, right? I mean, I was not a literacy, but like a literacy research class. Right. Um, and um, we were reading various things. And it was a class that was deliberately pro problematizing things. So like the professor was doing a very good job of, you know, talking about why, why, you know, using more critical research about literacy and so forth. So I don't have a problem with the class. She was one of my favorite professors. But, you know, certain things came up for discussion, articles, chapters, whatever, and people get, get so detached when they discuss things sometimes, you know, and, and it's part of one of the things I'm writing right now is about how that detachment, Ooh. which is the, the norm, um, and it allows for so much more harmful stuff to get through because it's, it's detached. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. uh, it's not frothing at the mouth anger type stuff. It's mm -hmm. just clinical. 
in a way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you just look at empirical research and you don't think who's it privileging and then who's it marginalizing. Right. And then we were talking about, I don't remember what the actual subject of the article was because I just remember how the discussion made me feel. And I said this in class, they were talking about some black students who were either struggling with literacy or whatever. That's what the article was about. And mm-hmm. the article was not necessarily problematic because it was trying to take a critical eye to it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember how good of it it was, but the, the problem wasn't the article, but the discussion mm-hmm. was just this very detached abstract thing about like black students. And at one point I said, you know, I feel like I'm on the platter here being dissected. Um, <laughs> and you know, they all kind of shut up, but you know, it was, interesting to me that like even people who when when I talk to them normally are very like up on critical stuff like they just sort of knee-jerk naturally slip back into this detached analysis of stuff Mm. um and I think that the way that you all are saying I'm not trying to doubt you I just haven't read the book um (laughs) are saying that it's conveyed in the book is is important because one of the reasons that I tend to struggle, not struggle like I can't do it, but struggle like I don't like it with a lot of academic work is that the people aren't in it. Oh, for sure. They're just not there. Like there's no, I'm like, who wrote this book? Who wrote this book? central tenet for us in this work. Um, We make very clear that we only chose participants that we already Mm -hmm. had reciprocal relationships with outside the university. So these were natural, quote unquote, natural relationships um, where we were givers and takers um, because otherwise it would just repeat um, our power dynamics. And we're under no illusions that we don't still hold that power residue in our relationships and they're still there. But like Mandy and I made a list of like actions for our own reflexivity to ensure like, how do I decenter myself? How do I um, ensure that their voices are heard and that the interpretations are in line with their view of reality? Um, And it was a constant challenge to do that because what I think Mandy and I noticed is that as white presenting and white researchers, um, we can believe this intellectually. And for myself, I can experience it to a degree, but because, um, frankly, like our fellow scholars of color that daily experience um, racialization um, and the horrid effects of it, we're always going to be coming at it slightly more from, like you said, like that detached or um, intellectual view rather than a purely, not purely, mostly experiential view. And so I had to keep reading like um, some of our esteemed colleagues to remember, no, I'm not taking it far enough. I may be taking a critical lens, but I need to take it to the nth degree. And it's because of my own experiences with marginal whiteness um, that I still um, in my flesh wanna appease um, the white listening subject or white epistemology. And so it, it really was a continual battle. For us. Yeah, I mean, that's, it, it's something that um, I don't want to say struggle with, because clearly at this point I have staked my, my, uh, <laughs> my claim to the way I've approached things. But uh, it's something that I still think about because it's interesting that like way back in my first semester of my program, um, I, my professor who 
like the, the first semester we take the like here is how to be a doctoral student but mm -hmm. and one of the things he 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 was at at the same time really tr trying to put us through the like look you got to get these this stuff right or they're not gonna you know whatever and he wasn't saying that he cared he was just saying this is what they're gonna care about you gotta get your apa right you know stuff. yeah but at the same time he was also like you need to have a voice in your writing mm -hmm. and i asked him i'm like are you sure you want that um <laughs> and, he wasn't ready <laughs> yeah and, and so uh he said yes and i said okay and i i uh started writing the way that i write and then you know there were other classes where i wasn't able to do that and i didn't enjoy those classes um because i think one of the problems with a lot of academia is it doesn't really help you develop a voice very well mm -hmm. um in fact it kind of in a lot of ways it tries to extinguish your voice you know mm -hmm. it, it it seems to care mostly about the production of what it considers to be knowledge um and that's it mm -hmm. um when you think about like an irb right and how the irb has rules i mean it's the r stands for regulation or, or mm -hmm. regulatory um and the idea is that it'll stop you from harming people right mm -hmm. but if you're the kind of person who's gonna go out there and harm people i'm not really sure the irb is gonna stop you <laughs> and on the other hand if you weren't going to do it i don't think you needed the irb i'm not saying we should have irb i'm mm -hmm. just saying like regulation isn't going to to keep people from doing harmful stuff mm -hmm. what i think is the harmful thing that i my point being that from what you're describing of the book your, your book is not doing is this detachment from the actual work we produce you know and i think that that detachment is is like it's even hard to notice because it's just like it's just like wallpaper mm -hmm. uh, you know it's just like um one of the things I was saying in this thing that you listened to today, but actually happened six weeks ago in real life when people listen to this episode, um, is like, uh, I don't want, like, who, who's reading academic work for pleasure? Mm -hmm. Who's like, oh man, I just want to hear the prose. <laughs> Ellie is. She is. <laughs> Five o'clock in the morning, she's sending me texts of what to read. Well, I mean, yes, yeah. I agree with your argument. Yeah. Well, that, that's what I'm saying. But like, there's, but there's so few of them. So right. it's like, you know, and I think that if I, my, my, my thought is, and I know written speech is different from spoken language. I mean, I don't know how different they really should be, but you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. uh, but I tend to think like if I know a person especially, like if I know if I've spoken to them and I read something and I'm like, that's not what she sounds like. <laughs> then I'm just like, what's going on here? You mm -hmm. know? Um, like when I read something that you've written or I read something that someone else has written that I've spoken to them, I hear them, I can hear them. Mm -hmm. Right? And I want to be able to hear them. So I think that from what I understand about uh your book is that well, aside from the testimonials, but I mean, like, uh, in the parts that are, you know, centered on your work, like, the idea for a reader should be that it sounds like you, plural, um, or one or the both of you, depending on who's writing a particular section, but you know what I mean. Um, so I think that that's, that's useful. Who would you say, I mean, yes, you want everybody to buy it, but 
who would you say that would benefit the most from reading the book? Literacy and language researchers are up and coming researchers, the doc students. Mm -hmm. um, because our argument is that very much in our research and in our, even in our doctoral programs, people tend to have expertise either in literacy or language education and just nascent understanding in the um, adjacent field. And so we're arguing we need a deep historical understanding of both so that we can truly catalyze them and see our students as they truly are. Um, and this is in many ways the book we wish we would have had in graduate school that can provide this um, nuanced overview of the fields and um, allow us to situate our work within that field. And to do it all for the end goal of transformative justice. If our literacy and language research is not making a difference in our world today, in our real world issues, then it's all for naught. We don't want to put lines on CVs. We want to conduct research that really will affect change, not just in schools, but in our world. Mm -hmm. And so like that's very much reflected in our research methodology with the people we choose. Again, focusing on those. I think we've had between four year relationships with some of our participants to seven year relationships. So this has been going on for a while. Um, and it's part of our daily life, just who we are as human beings. And so that humanizing pedagogy is very much at the core of this work. I, uh, I think that, well, my question is an existential question because I always wonder like, I think that this will be really resonant with people who, like you say, feel like they wish they had this book or they're in their programs now, but they're already somewhat interested. How do we get the people who are resistant to this sort of thing, people who just like, if you heard again recent but like you heard the last episode with nicole talking mm -hmm. about like all these people who are going to be future tesol uh teachers um and they don't want like she's teaching all these like white uh, future teachers right now mm -hmm. who are just like not all having it <laughs> um so yeah a professor could bring it into their class and make somebody read it but like i you know i think you can only bring a horse to water, you can't make them drink sort of situation, right. right? So how do we get more horses to the water? Well, we hope we make a really cohesive academic argument for other academics that if you are not overtly taking a bi, multi, or trans stance in your work, you are perpetuating the mono-mainstream assumption, which is a pillar of white supremacy. So we hope we can get um, our fellow academics and researchers to take a, a different view, and that's why we have the testimonials in there, and we present it, you know, like a, a research study with you know all five of the neat little parts our introductions literature review theoretical framework with the methodology findings discussion but we hope um through the testimonials we can make that argument to other academics who then in turn would take it and put it in their research in their teacher education courses and so on mm -hmm. 
And to piggyback off of what Mandy said, to me, what's helped, one of my favorite books I read in 2019 was called Intellectual Empathy. And so it talks about how do you change people's minds, you know, because we have core beliefs that they say, you're pretty much not going to be able to change in people. But if it's a secondary or tertiary belief, you may be able to change those over time. And so this particular professor of the book or writer of the book makes the argument that um, in so many words, in order to change people's perspectives, you need to connect a core belief with whatever perspective you're trying to create. And so when working with pre-service teachers, we review our core beliefs and who we are as educators and then connect an explicitly um, critically conscious or critical perspective to that. And that so many, and then we particularly talk about um, the relationship between intent and impact. And so once we've identified their core beliefs, we say, hey, like your intent to be compassionate is at 100 percent but as human beings our impact isn't always in line with that so we need to bridge that gap with our learning so you can have an impact that is more in line with your intent i think that because even in my like job like i was talking about something that was a problem this summer and like my two levels up the boss was talking about well you know they didn't mean it and i was like I know they did. Yeah, it's about the impact. It's just like that, that if they had meant it, frankly, it'd be easier to deal with. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> if someone like meant me harm, I could be like, hey, cut mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, like, I don't want to get so like postmodern to be saying things like, you know, the fact that you know, loud white nationalists on TV aside, in general life, the, you know, impact of whiteness these days is more insidious than overt. Mm -hmm. Well, I should say overt to white people, like we see. Right. But yes. <laughs> like, so I don't and, tend to- And Dr. Nelson Flores makes that distinction that right. The, it's not about explicit, implicit. If you're right. a racialized person, it's explicit, you know? Right. I, I, I've tried to I've tried to think of a better word for something when whatever uh, the, the to me the binary is whether it's so obvious that other white people can see it mm. um, because there was a time when it was so obvious that other white people could see it right uh, and it was more commonly so I, I I don't know what a good word for that is there's a fly up there I don't know maybe my pants is here or something um, but like, there's, there's a fly, it's bothering me. Um, but the point I'm making is that, uh, just because it's more insidious now, I don't want to pretend that things weren't worse back in the day. <laughs> like, cause if I told my dad, you know, dad, mm -hmm. the fact that things are a little bit more insidious now means that things are worse and it, it no. No. And I think we can hold that intention. Right. More comprehensive and transdisciplinary theories allow us to honor those fine gradations too. Yeah, but people don't usually want to talk about that. Like the only people who want to talk about it are people who want to talk about it. True. Well, right. that's what we want to do. We want to 
put forth uh, the Bordeaux's idea of doxa, the realm of the undisputed and the undiscussed. We don't talk about this. And we want to use the testimonials to bring about an extraordinary discourse to be like, hey, look at this. Let's bring this into the discussion and ask why. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it's funny because when I was um, starting at this stuff, I every presentation I went to seemed like somebody mentioned Bourdieu. And I, I just, it's just like every time I went to a presentation, it was like, as Bourdieu says, and I was like, what's happening here? Following um, yeah. But, <laughs> but it, it, it works because it's, it, 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 you know, a lot, of, a lot of what he was writing about just really seems to, to, to connect with the way people behave. It does seem like it's hard to get a job as a philosopher these days, but, um, you know, <laughs> I just, just go and think and write some stuff. Uh, maybe it seems like a fun job. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so before we, we shove off here, um, do you have, I mean, you know, because with the things that I tend to talk about, obviously, we've touched on some of them, you know, and uh, obviously on this podcast, I mostly talk about, you know, like white epistemologies and, and, and you know, racial linguistic ideology, you know, those sort of things. Um, and those are things that are in your book, right? Like that's some of the stuff you talk about, whether you use the same language that I use or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but like... To me, the real difficulty, aside from getting people to just actually buy a book, because, you know, um, not everybody does that, but to me, the real difficulty is, is, um, is, is getting someone who's in the academic space, right, because that's mostly who's being pitched to, but others, you know, be able to read it, um, and thinks they are doing things in a helpful way already. Mm-hmm. You know, the stuff I was talking about with the altruistic shield stuff, you know, right. people who think that because they're in the language and literacy space, they're already helping people. Mm-hmm. So they'll read the book and they might be able to recognize that the problems exist, but they'll still externalize them and think the problems have nothing to do with them. And I'm not saying you're, t- you're taking your book as a, as a um, you know, polemic towards individuals, but like, how do you, not you, but how does one, uh, you know, uh, help people see that they need to do internal work while also understanding that they need to help cause broader systemic change? Because to me, that that connection between the like the like you have to do both people are like well i'll do this and i'll do that it's like but like how do you get people because i think some people can be we talk about convincing can be convinced to go along to make take part in systemic change and that's really useful and necessary and some people can be convinced that they need to do internal work but i think it's hard to get both and i think mm. with books most of the time you, you you get one or the other but how, how do you get someone who's interested in the book and has been thinking about race and or whatever, um, and has understood for a while that like the native speaker fallacy, like the, you know, like, there's been some work in this field. So right. how do you get people to, you know, really see like, huh, I have to do work myself mm-hmm. if they don't already see it. Right. Yeah, in the last chapter in our conclusion, we talk about how all of this should lead to radical research, 
radical practice, radical policy, so changes you know, at policy levels, but also radical reflexivity and how we are always going to be um, just thinking about our own positions and what we're doing. So do you want to talk a little bit more about that section, Allie? I love to. So because we experience this so much in our working relationship with one another, um, I remember Mandy would say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm like, you don't need to, she's like, I'm a white girl. And I'm like, Mandy, you do not need to apologize. I feel like the tensions um, and our positionalities are productive because we're able to, again, view things from multiple perspectives and it encourages us um, to be more clear and cogent in our writing. Um, so with the radical reflexivity, you know, we talk about how a key component of qualitative research is reflexivity. And while that's good, that's not radical. So what would it mean to take it to the extreme? And we talk about how um, it's reflecting on your own positionality um, over history in the past and how it's been positioned, but also in the present over many contexts. So many of our participants um, experience several liminal identities or in-between. So they may not um, be racialized in all spaces that they traverse um, or viewed as middle class or any of the other identity descriptors. And so we talk about how we need to reflect not only on how we fit in the past, but also how we fit across context. And we have to continually do that in community. So even as we're writing the book, Mandy and I are engaging in that reflexivity. And when we first I don't know if we should say this out loud, but I mean, like when we first engaged um, in the first phase of our research in our data, um, I guess, debrief meeting, we noticed oh, two of our three participants could be read as white. And so we are reproducing whiteness because of our own whiteness. What does it mean as researchers? Because we're white and white presenting, maybe that's causing interacting affecting the relationships that we have with others that may also be white or white presenting or very fair skin as part of members um, of a community of color. And so that allowed us to, to check ourselves, you know, and think, hey, is that really what we want to do here? And we're like, no, like we want some more dimensionality because we're concerned with complex truth um, and how we can see and build out and more dimensionality in our understanding. So um, to summarize that, radical reflexivity to us means continually reflecting, not only during the research process, but also in relationships, according to the past and this, the so many contexts that we come into play with. And we hope we can influence emerging scholars to realize there is no neutrality. If you think you're neutral, you are perpetuating status quo. And you might be doing it as a really nice person, maybe a really nice white person like me, um, but you are perpetuating status quo. And I would hope anyone would look at just the situation we have in our country now and think, I don't like status quo. I want my children to grow up in a different world. And if we want to affect change, we have to do something radical. We can't do the same old thing over again. Even if it's real nice and well-intentioned, we have got to do things radically different. So we hope we can influence a new generation of scholars to see that. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's a shame that even for me, when I sort of came to these conclusions eventually, 
that I that like you all say, I didn't have anything like this. I'm, I'm sure there was some book that, that, even though it wasn't about these topics, that would have had this influence on me. But like, again, I keep being annoyed that like the one program that I have debt from is my master's program, and that's the one where they didn't do any of this stuff. So, <laughs> so I'm just gonna keep like every time you know every month when I have to pay them, I'm just like you know, you know. <laughs> you could have done so much more for me mm-hmm. than teach me how to make very well-timed lesson plans. Like, I'm glad, but the fact is, after a while, you can kind of figure that out. But this stuff, you really need to do the work. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you all joining me. Um, I put a link in the descriptor. So when this premieres there will be a link there people can go to which i guess when the episode comes out it'll still be a pre-order technically but i presume that the link will turn into a regular link a few weeks later Mm -hmm. um and uh yeah i hope uh people find this compelling and interesting and go out well not go out stay home whatever but go on the internet and and get, get themselves a copy and hopefully it ends up in a bunch of schools so that people can learn better than they used to. Well, thanks for having us, Justin. We appreciate it. Yeah, Yeah. thank you so much.